Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Bobby Barnes, head of Quantitative Index Solutions, is here with us today to discuss how factor investing can help investors find calm in the chaos and which factors fit best in today's market cycle. As U.S. equity markets are anticipating a 75 basis point rate hike by the Federal Reserve, Bobby notes that allocations to momentum and quality factors should give you participation if the market is rising, but at the same time can offer good downside protection. Bobby also shares how his work has found that the low vol factor historically performs well in both light cycle and in recessionary environments. Speaking of late cycle, Bobby reflects on housing affordability, where we are in the market cycle, and touts the benefits of knowing one's investment strategy and risk tolerance to not get caught up reacting to short-term market movements. This podcast was recorded on September 9th, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy, or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. We speak to you, as we mentioned, on a day where we're seeing markets rally. There's there's an awful lot in the markets that um, doesn't really point to that. Uh, I might just ask you off the top, like, what does this feel like, this type of rally, when you see these pieces of um, the equity and slash risk story uh, going in this direction right now? Well, I mean, there are a couple of things here. I mean, you know, on any on any given day, it's kind of hard to extrapolate that out and, and to say anything meaningful that, you know, what you're seeing um, has uh, any bearing on what's going to happen in the future. And so, and that's irrespective of whether or not you're bullish or bearish. I mean, you're going to yeah. get days that uh, support that argument either way. Uh, in fact, uh, we had a whole month of, of this kind of dynamic we're having today uh, back in July where, um, you know, we were, I guess, in, the, in Q2 reporting, but it was very much uh, risk on, um, you know, low quality, you know, negative earners, I think, did the best uh, in that month. Um, and it gave some back in, in August, uh, but then, you know, we're experiencing a day of that. Um, and there's been a couple of day, days thus far in September like that. So um, I don't read too much into that, um, you know, as part of the typical ebb and flow. Uh, as you alluded, um, uh, my outlook uh, continues to be the same uh, for this year in that um, uh, it's going to be characterized mostly by economic slowdown. And, and that's what we've been experiencing. Um, you know, with Q2 reporting, um, uh, the numbers, the estimates had, cam- had come down. So as, as typical uh, companies, I think on average, beat by about 5% on those lowered estimates. Uh, mm-hmm. But the real action wasn't in the Q2 reporting. Uh, what you really needed to be watching was what was happening to the Q3, Q4, and the 2023 estimates. Uh, and right. those have really started to come down uh, over the course of this Q2 reporting. So that's fascinating, and because it points to exactly what we'll we'll try and talk about a lot today. I mean, I think it's fair to say that uh, we're seeing some high volatility today. Um, so why don't you just tell us ultimately a couple of different factors that we might 
you know, flesh out a bit more in our conversation today, but we're definitely watching volatility, right? So if, if you're if you're looking at a fast factor to kind of deal with that, what what might a couple of them be? Yeah, so it's going to be a bumpy ride, um, uh, especially as we move forward in the second half of 2022. Um, and so naturally, uh, as, as the name uh, suggests, low vol is one way to smooth out that ride, uh, low vol factor, that is. Um, uh, that being said, you know, there are others that uh, I, I like in this current environment as well. Uh, momentum as an example, um, you know, just to uh, uh, remind everyone what momentum is, it's, it's basically investing in those stocks that have done well over the last 12 months. Um, and, so, uh, and so because of that, it's kind of like describe it sometimes as a chameleon factor. It kind of takes on the characteristics of what has been working. And so with that being said, um, momentum kind of has um, a bit of a little wall characteristic now, um, also high quality, um, and then just a, a little bit of value since um, at the start of the year, uh, we did have a bit of a value run. Um, and so you're kind of finding those uh, quality or low vol at a reasonable price is the way to think about what you're getting with momentum. We'll dig into all of those. I, I want to just get straight a little bit for everyone joining us here today. We've spoken to you many times. We're lucky to have spoken to you many times. But just describe, um, I mean, I know actually you're a rocket scientist to begin with. You used to work at NASA. So that, that that's one piece of um, your story. But ultimately, how do does some of the guidance that you give within Fidelity, you know, reach the investors that are joining us here today? Um, well, there are, there are multiple ways. I mean, I think the, the first way is, is through my team's partnership with the uh, Fidelity Canada product team, where, you know, um, I like to say I'm kind of the the, the fixer, if you will. People, people like to approach me with their tough problems and say, hey, Bobby, we want to curate a particular investment solution. Can you help us build it? Uh, and so one example of that would be the metaverse, uh, the total metaverse uh, uh, index and ETF that we launched this summer. And so that's uh, an example where uh, the, the FIC uh, Fairly Canada product team approached me and my team uh, with ideas of uh, um, what type of exposures we wanted to offer uh, our clients um, you know, the risk return properties that we were aiming for. And then, as I like to say, my team and I go in our little engine room and uh, and then create um, a, a process that helps identify those stocks um, that meet those characteristics. So in this example, we were looking for uh, companies that are emblematic of uh, uh, Web 3.0 um, uh, and also um, digital payments. Um, both the traditional digital payments, but then the emerging ones that kind of um, get into some of the, some of the crypto stuff. Um, and so, you know, as a quant, you know, there's the security selection that uh, we have expertise in, but then also, and just as importantly, uh, portfolio construction. Uh, and how do you put all those pieces together in a way that is um, uh, offers our shareholders a superior investment experience? So, so you and your team, I think there's other rocket scientists too, go into the engine room, this is fascinating to me, um, and do some of this, you know, just while we're on the metaverse, I wouldn't mind asking you just to bring us up to date on, on crypto actually, because it's something we've spoken to you about in the past. It's obviously at the moment behaving like risk assets. It's not always meant to, but what's your take? How do you look at that? You know, cryptos is interesting. I've, I'm glad you asked me that because it's something that I've been um, thinking deeply about uh, for a while now. I'm mostly just trying to answer the question in my own mind, what is it exactly? And um, what I have arrived at after mulling over this for some time is, is actually, it reminds me a lot of my time uh, back when I was an engineer, you know, working at 
uh, tech companies and uh, particularly startup companies. And the, when back in those days, uh, the way that, uh, you know, a, a new company that may not have revenue, as an example, the way that they would compensate their employees would be to give you stock options. Right. And then at that time, it's like those options, if you think about it, they were, uh, uh, they basically offered you exposure to the upside in the company if and when they uh, launched a product and that product was adopted, you would you know, benefit economically from that. Crypto is kind of the same way. There's, you know, it's, it's not really necessarily being used in a ubiquitous way yet, but if you're owning the tokens now, it's in the same way that you know, I, I would have had stock options in this startup company. And if it were successful, that would be um, a very successful economic outcome. Crypto is kind of similar. If you know, if and when um, you know these digital assets get used um, in a pervasive way in our everyday lives, then that will—that's where the uh, the economic benefit will accrue. That's fascinating. And then, and then it could sort of change the way it behaves ultimately, you know, within within the markets. And that's. Uh, but going back to sort of what you said about the macro environment. I mean, I, I do want to kind of get a handle on how you see things broadly, because it, it fits into obviously the question of low volve, the question ultimately of, of looking at momentum, which direction it's going to go in. Um, how do you see the markets? Here we are awaiting, we think, a monster hike from the Fed. We don't know, but uh, certainly enough of the market believes that at the moment. How, how does how does this end? So, yeah, so and, then, and there's a lot to unpack there because you can also there's the story that here in North America, but then, you know, we can have similar conversations about, you know, Europe, emerging markets. Uh, so I'll, let me just start with the U.S. and we'll see where, where we go from there. Um, you know, yes, the, the market is, I think, anticipating another 75 basis point hike. Um, you know, some people like to split, split hair between is it 50 or is it 75. Uh, but I echo back things I've said before, which is that um, uh, the, the magnitude uh, doesn't matter as much. It's really so, is it going up or is it going down? The, the way to think about it. Um, and it's and it's because, is it, you know, what you're really after is, is the cost of money going to be more expensive <laughs> than it was before or less? And that's going to have um, economic implications. Um, and so that being said, there's a, you know, if I uh, kind of set the context, because, you know, it really became uh, part of our conversation, uh, mostly in the last six months. Uh, but even prior to that, uh, if your listeners might have uh, heard me before, uh, the cost of money had been rising um, already, if you're looking at the uh, 10 year treasury. And that those moves have an impact on earnings uh, and economic activity, um, but with an 18 month lag. And so, um, and, and, I, and I say that, emphasize that to, to make the following point, which is that there's a lot of back and forth about whether or not there's to be a Fed pivot. Yes, there is. And the market really seems to be, I mean, there seem to be very confident voices in both directions, actually. Sure, yeah. And, um, you know, and I won't get into that fray, but what, what, what I will highlight, uh, which may be illuminating, is that even if the Fed did pivot today, they said, you know, we're not going to do the, 75 basis point hike. Um, the uh, uh, benefits of that won't happen until you know 18 months later. <laughs> and so we've already have basically already have to pay the piper for the the uh, increases in costs or money that we've already experienced. And so that's where we are today, and that's what feeds into my outlook um, for this year and into 2023, continuing to be one of a more defensive posture. Right. Okay. Fascinating. So 
we've spoken about this before a little bit. Again, from a factor perspective, the the place we are in a market cycle, if it is some version of a slowdown or in fact something closer to a recession and, and we don't really know, the, the positioning is pretty much the same that, that you would suggest. Is that right? Yes, yes. That's, and that's also right. I mean, you know, people, I, I, I don't concern myself that much with making a, the distinction between an economic slowdown or a uh, recession because the, the prescription from a factor performance is the same either way. Um, as it stands today, uh, our asset allocation team, uh, who I uh, subscribe to very strongly, uh, they uh, su suggest that we're solidly in um, late cycle right now, uh, which is, is characterized by slowing growth. So positive growth, but at a slower rate. And so when you look historically at the factors that tend to do well in such an environment, it is uh, momentum and um, uh, quality in particular. Uh, but uh, they are more neutral. They found uh, more neutral um, uh, benefits from low vol. But from, from my work, um, I actually would extend um, the prescription to include low vol because it kind of does well uh, in both uh, late cycle and in recession. Interesting. Okay. And so it just flush out a little bit sort of the, as you say, the asset allocation call or, you know, what, what else do we need to be ready for? Like we spoke about the cost of capital. Does that, does that necessarily translate into, into defaults? I mean, again, what, what types of things does this positioning sort of help ballast against essentially? Yes, yes, that is correct. Um, uh, we'll start with your, with your uh, defaults comment. So it, it does help uh, uh, inoculate you uh, against those. Um, you know, the other uh, thing to keep in mind about slowing growth uh, and or recession is that uh, uh, where we are right now, we're at, we're, we're at a place where, um, and it may not feel this way, but we're at a place where things are as good as they get. You know, if, hmm. you, think it, if you look at things like, um, say, corporate defaults, where they're at, you know, lows. We look at unemployment. We are at or near uh, lows. And that's always the case before we go into recession. Every cycle. Right. You go, you know, go look at all of them and look 12 months before. Things were as good as they get and then, you know, started to unwind. Um, and, so, and so because of that, that's why you want to have the uh, defensive positioning because, um, you know, there's this concept of downside capture, which is something that uh, I speak with our portfolio managers a lot. And um, the way to think about downside capture is you want to minimize the, uh, the probability or amount that you will lose money. And the reason that that is, um, if, I, if you indulge me, I'll share with you this, this following thought exercise. You know, if you have an investment and it goes down 50% and it goes up 50%, uh, Many lay people or laypersons might think that you're back to even, but trust me, I'm the rocket scientist. If you do the math, you're actually still down, <laughs> still down by a lot. And uh, which means that downside capture is worth more than upside capture. And so um, having that balance in your portfolio um, helps you maintain what we call dry powder so that when you get to the part of the economic cycle where you, where you should take more risk, um, you've got the capital available to deploy that. So um, I'd love you to comment again within sort of the macro discussion of, of signals of, of what you see and what ultimately leads you to work with the types of factors that you're pointing out. It, it really is the is the unemployment situation because it, it seems um, like a positively uh, but weird situation. Uh, how do you read unemployment at the moment and, and ultimately how it fits into sort of the macro discussion? 
Yeah, yeah. So unemployment, um, you know, there are a couple of things there. It's, uh, you know, one, one data point doesn't make a trend, but this most recent uh, reading on unemployment, excuse me, it actually did tick up um, uh, by a little bit, but uh, not necessarily for, well, it, it, it ticked up for a good reason, which is that um, more people came into the workforce looking for a job. Um, and so all things being equal, that's actually a good thing. Um, but uh, I do anticipate uh, unemployment will rise for the, the the more negative reason, which is that you know companies are, are laying uh, uh, employees off, um, and and some of that is really you know what the Fed is after. I mean the the employment market is very tight right now, and so um, and uh, increasing the the cost of money uh, via Fed rate hikes, they're trying to slow the economy down, um, and so one of the byproducts of that would be a uh, higher un unemployment from where it is today. Right. Yeah. And so, I mean, it, it seems that a lot of people sort of talk about that. Um, what's the discussion of the hero? <laughs> I, I wanted to, and, and these markets that we're looking at today might might be almost a good illustration. I, it's the way, partly, you've mentioned this before, that you that you guide your team of sort of looking for different pieces of the story. There's There's a a heroic discussion here. Can you bring that to light for us? Yes, yes. So just to, you know, to set the context there, um, you know, this is a um, a way of uh, so in my throughout the duration of my career um, at Fidelity when um, supporting our portfolio managers, uh, one of the thought exercises that I always would go through in working with our portfolio managers is you know find the heroic assumption. And so every investment has uh, some thesis behind it, um, and the premise behind this heroic assumption is um, you want to, if the thesis, your thesis for free investment is um, predicated on something heroic happening, like something that's never happened before, something that has an extremely low probability, then, then that's an area where you really want to spend more time uh, digging into your thesis and, and ensuring that um, your, your, your confidence that that's going to actually happen. And, and so, you know, one of the areas that I, that I uh, in this exercise that I see today is where, you know, I see um, uh, commentary about, um, uh, you know, uh, I call it bottom fishing, you know, you know, buying the stuff that's really beaten down uh, over the summer. And there's a lot of there's a lot of that right now. Um, you know, so, you know, you can you know pick your, you know, a lot of these, you know, uh, nascent thematic strategies, for example, are down a lot. Uh, and so it could be it's seducive to want to buy those things now. Um, but the when you in my mind, when I do this exercise of finding the heroic assumption um, in order to buy those today, you must believe and it must be true that um, you're going to get some reacceleration in economic activity, because that's that's what these sorts of investments need uh, on a go forward basis in order to do well. And so it's you know, anything's possible, but not everything is is probable. And that's where I would describe that as being a, a heroic assumption that I see today. We've, again, pieces of this story that, that lead and, and funnel into how you're looking at factors that work. Uh, I mean, there are many people who will say housing is the economy. Uh, people will disagree with that or agree with that, but um, it's not unimportant. What, what do you see in the housing story right now? This would be more in the U.S. Canadians have, you know, it's all we talk about at cocktail parties and we're allowed to is housing prices. Um, but... From your perspective, looking sort of broadly across the U.S., there have been some real changes in the housing market. 
Yeah, housing is another um, place where I, you know, I've seen some what I would describe as a heroic assumption, especially if, if you're if you're bullish on it now. I mean, it's very clear uh, if you look at what has transpired. Um, prices went up uh, very quickly, and they're quite high. And then, um, in conjunction with that, um, uh, the, the financing costs also went up uh, quite substantially. And um, and so, where we stand today with housing is actually um, uh, pretty mind-boggling. It's when you look at the affordability. So, affordability needs to take into account both pieces: what's the price of the house, but then also what's the uh, financing cost. Um, we are at a point today in the U.S. Uh, at affordability that's well beyond where we were at the financial crisis, um, you know, back in the um, uh, you know 2008, 2009 uh, era. Um, you know, that being said, I, I do want to make this other point, which is that um, even though we're you know affordability is very low uh, based off of that metric, I don't necessarily see as much risk uh, with respect to housing as I, as we had back then because. You know, back in those days, we did have a lot of um, what we call poor borrowers, where they um, had bad credit scores. I don't even know if the banks were even taking uh, credit scores for some of these borrowers back then. So we're not, you know, we're not in that kind of environment. And don't don't expect your house to depreciate by 25% or you know, or you know, whatever the case may be. But I do think um, there's going to need to be some normalization, and that's going to need probably come from a, a decline in house prices, and so. It's you know it's likely to be something more uh, moderate than what we experienced, but a decline nonetheless. So, and we know the link to that, the increased cost, the affordability question on housing from those two different sort of perspectives. It goes to the consumer's ability to spend. Ultimately, I think the last time we spoke, um, you were looking at you know one of the proverbial canary in the in the coal mine of um, of inventories. Going back mm -hmm. to the consumer, mm -hmm. the discussion there, um, they built up the good services divide and discussion of where the economy is going, we, we, we know well. Is, is there any update that you would share on that? Is there still some way to go on, on that particular story for consumer stocks? Yes, uh, there, there's still uh, ways to go. And, uh, and what uh, strikes me as fascinating about that whole thing is that I, you know, in, in my mind, um, you know, oftentimes your people say, well, okay, well, uh, is it priced in? And I don't, I feel like it's pretty well known that inventories are bloated now. And right. despite that, I mean, we, you, know, you and I were talking about this months ago. And despite that, companies are still finding a way to disappoint on earnings, um, you know, particularly the retailers, um, uh, because they, they just they have way too much stuff. I mean, it's you know now's a great time. You know, if you if you if you haven't bought by uh, an air fryer or a big screen TV yet, <laughs> you're gonna you know now's a great time to get the deal because they've got way too much of that stuff. Um, and so that continues to be an ongoing theme. Um, actually, I'll, if you indulge me, I'll share one more story. Yeah. I had my, my family in town um, a few weeks ago. And um, speaking of retail inventories, we had a nice dinner and there was a uh, uh, Old Navy across the street. And so my niece and nephew went in, came back out uh, grinning ear, ear to ear. And uh, I said, well, why are you guys so happy? And they said that they had just bought T-shirts for 14 cents. And I thought, oh my gosh, like that's how bad the inventory problem is where you're, you know, it's near free. You're giving stuff near free just to get it out the door. Wow. That is something actually. I mean, yeah. Why even bother? Anyway, that's, that is something. Um, again, so that is the picture that you're getting. Um, wasn't there sort of an interesting story that, that you might tell us also about 
just the consumer's ability to buy. I think this was a cars example, actually, that I wanted to ask you about. Of just you know how many cars ultimately globally are are bought and sold, and you you would learn this lesson. It goes kind of to the TV story, the T-shirt story. I think years ago, right? Yes, yes, yes. And this is kind of a, another you know uh, heroic assumption exercise as well. So this was a, um, a conversation that I was having with uh, one of my colleagues uh, last summer, and so. Um, you know, one of the when I you know started in this business uh, 14 years ago, uh, one of the things we did with our analysts at the time uh, was that uh, every quarter uh, we got one-on-one -on -one sessions with Peter Lynch, who's you know one of the greatest investors of all time. And so um, I was you know fresh out of Harvard Business School and uh, on my I think it was my literally my first meeting with him, and we were talking consumer uh, and um, and we got to talking about autos, and he said to me very simply, he said, Bobby, all you need to know about autos. Um, there's a set number of cars that gets uh, uh, purchased on a yearly basis. This is globally or like just in the U.S. or? Uh, mostly, I think it, our conversation was revolving around the U.S., but I think it extends to, to, to global as well. It's a, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a number and there's some small variation around that number, but it doesn't really change materially. And, um, you know, I think the, um, the, the rough numbers, again, which is 14 years ago, but I think that, you know, the rough numbers he walked me through at, at the time was that, you know, you're looking at about, you know, uh, when you're in mid-cycle, it's about 15 million uh, vehicles per year. Then you go into recession and it goes down to maybe 12 and then you come out in, re in recovery and it's 18. But really, for all intents and purposes, 15 is your number. Um, and where this gets to the, the heroic assumption exercise um, of, of, of last summer was if you look at the if you looked at that time at the aggregate market cap of all autos, the that market cap had tripled, and so for that to be a, a fair price in aggregate, you needed to assume that uh, the total addressable market for uh, for cars had gone from it had also tripled had gone from 15 million to 45, but no one was assuming that right you know, and so clearly then. Um, you know, there's there was an oddity in the market that needed to correct for itself, and so you know, you, you know, you had many electric vehicle companies that were IPOing and had market caps bigger than like Ford or GM, but hadn't sold any cars. And so, you know, where we, you know, that's corrected for itself now. But yeah, it's uh, one of the many good nuggets that I've gotten from uh, Peter Lynch over the years. That's fascinating. Of course, Peter Lynch wouldn't have known of the the massive amounts of stimulus that that had to be uh, maybe at the time, arguably, uh, put into the market to to help us come out of the pandemic ultimately. But to have that kind of money sloshing around and what it did to valuations, it's it's still still relevant. You know, so fascinating to apply it to to what was going on last year. Your thoughts on energy, particularly over the winter, and and what it might mean for certain factors. Ah, uh, yes. Energy is a good discussion. I mean, um, so one of the things I look at very closely is uh, estimate revisions. And because that, you know, is in my work, uh, predicts what uh, stocks, uh, industries, factors will outperform, uh, all the like. And so uh, year to date, um, uh, energy's estimate revisions have been spectacular and just consistent. I mean, every month, uh, the, the, the EPS revisions uh, for the energy companies continue to rise. Um, and so, uh, you know, I've got a couple of thoughts there with energy. Um, at first, our asset allocation team, as I mentioned, uh, declared that we're in, in, in late cycle, which I agree with. Historically, late cycle is um, uh, a good, is a tailwind for energy. Um, as for similar reasons, you know, inflation, which is very topical, uh, one of the ways to hedge uh, uh, 
you know, particularly if you're a consumer, your, your purchasing power is to invest in energy stocks. Uh, and so that continues to be a, a tailwind as well. And so um, as we look into the fall, which is gets to the, the, the crux of the question, um, I continue to think that energy will um, uh, continue to do well. Um, but that being said, um, uh, what, I, what most concerns me, if any, about energy is when we, if and when we do get into a re recession, because uh, you know at that point you will get uh, lower demand. And um, uh, from from my uh, work, usually when you've got demand uh, destruction, be it you know economic activity or the like, uh, energy doesn't uh, do as well. But uh, but for now, I, yeah, I think energy is in a good place. That's great. Um, so what do you want to leave people with? This is this is a moment we're watching markets do what they're doing right now. And as you, I think you said, you know, things look really good, which what then? How do you position when things look really good at this point in the cycle? Yeah, well, I, I'll leave uh, our audience with um, and something I say a lot that, um, you know, the, the best strategy is to pick uh, uh, an approach and to stick with it. And so there's a lot of um, inclination to, uh, you know, uh, follow the market gyrations and try to react to it on a, on a micro basis. That doesn't typically end well for anybody. And so, you know, as we've talked about in our discussion, um, uh, allocations to momentum, uh, low vol and uh, quality, uh, that's going to give you um, participation, you know, if the market is rising, uh, but at the same time, offer up some of that downside uh, capture or that uh, downside mitigation, and and so that's gonna you know be a prescription that will allow you to uh, avoid you know um, the behavioral bias of wanting to try to time the market of when I'm gonna sell out and raise cash or then get back in. And that's a, a very tough game, and very few people are able to do that well. It is a pleasure to speak with you. Have fun at the Bruno Mars concert tonight, by the way. Will do. I look forward to it. They have a fantastic time, Bobby Barnes. All the best. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. You can visit fidelity.ca for more information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter. Thanks again. See you next time.